Well, welcome everybody to the Blow-Off Valve podcast, episode 7. Uh, we're your hosts, Alex and Tucker, and this is our first episode that we're doing in person, so it's kind of exciting. We're the podcast for automotive news, motorsports news, and really anything else uh, car-related we find interesting. So we've kind of got an interesting uh, cross-section of stuff uh, to talk about this week, and, and we wanted to kick things off with talking about the Taycan Cross Turismo. It's the wagon variant of the Porsche Taycan. Essentially the same car, but with some unique body panels, longer roof and more cargo space. Uh, not a lot of detail on it yet. Uh, there have been a lot of spy shots, but probably similar trim levels as the as the normal Taycan. Probably costing about four to 6000 more than their uh, equivalent uh, sedan variant, uh, just because of the extra materials and, and whatnot that goes into making them. So uh, you sent me a, a couple of pictures of this this week, and <laughs> we're kind of laughing about it. What do you think about it? Well, the specific pictures that I sent was a, um, it was like a side view of it. And I, and I think I said something to the effect of, doesn't this look like a really fast Hertz? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, cause it was all black. It's all black. Yeah. And all of those kind of mules or whatever they're driving around with now. Right. And you know, I own a wagon, so I'm not anti-wagon. Right. Like, I do. I, I love wagons, but with Porsche, I just feel like the, the form of it is very jarring. You know, SUVs are SUVs. Like, they just look like SUVs. Mm -hmm. But, like, the Taycan, one of the things I think it got right and looks it looks so amazing because it really captures that look of the 911 right. from the side. Right. You've got that sloping roof line that actually comes down. And I, when I was picking mine up, I, I said to the, <clears throat> the dealership, I was really glad in their design language that they... They went with looks a little bit over function in the back. Like it's a mm -hmm. little bit tight, I guess, if you're yeah. styling you know, one out a little bit. Yeah. yeah. If you're over like six feet tall, it's a little tight back there, but it looks beautiful. And that was one of my main issues with the Panamera when it when it first came out is it, it just it was kind of an ungainly looking thing to me because yeah the original one did. Yeah, really you're you're bad. trying to, you know, take a nine eleven and turn it into a sedan mm -hmm. and it's didn't really work. I just didn't think yeah. personally it didn't work very well. And so I think they got it right with the Taycan and now with the cross Turismo with, with that roof line, you know, extending all the way back. It, it's for me, at least it's kind of getting away from that nine 11 look. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't know that I, I'm not like a huge fan of it. Um, but I, I look forward to seeing one on the road and maybe seeing one in person at some point. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I'll be a little bit more surprised in person. I think I think it's fucking rad, man. I <laughs> I have a thing for for fast wagons in general. Like if the RS6 wasn't so ungodly expensive, that would be my daily driver for sure. I think it just looks so cool. And and this is the same thing. Like I agree the original Panamera looked blobby and kind of ungainly, but they've refined that design over the years to the point that like the newest Panamera Sport Turismo, I think, looks phenomenal. And the Taycan Cross Turismo looks very similar to the Panamera Sport Turismo. I think mm -hmm. it looks just long and sleek. It'll look really striking when we see it in colors other than the, the black test mule yeah. that's running around. Yeah, that's true. You know, whether I think it's worth the premium, it just depends. Like, you know, there's not a lot of, at least currently on the market, aside from the, the Audi, there's not a lot of, you know, family size EVs. You know, that's going to change, obviously, with the Rivian 
truck and SUV yeah. and whatnot, but like this is kind of an appealing EV family hauler. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you're going to be able to fit a lot of stuff in that. Um, one of the things I think is, is, you know, one difference comes down to America and Europe. Obviously we look at wagons a little bit different, right? They're kind of much more here. common. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In Europe. And so I, I did find, I thought it was very interesting when I was on the, the Tycon forum a, a couple of weeks ago and there was discussion about this. Uh, one of the individuals on the forum is, is from, I think it's a dealership in Texas. Mm -hmm. And he basically came out and said, like, we, we didn't take any allocations of this. They just um, knew, like, in they, Texas, they, they're selling trucks and SUVs. And exactly. It. And, and, you know, uh, even, even like up here in, in, uh, minnesota you know you look at the dealerships in the cities like they have they still have a lot of tycons on the lot right and so i think that i think as a dealership in general in the midwest yeah, yeah. are not as popular <laughs> and as a yeah you're going to turn that into a wagon right you're going to probably have a lot of those sitting on the lot at least in america so they basically said they will order it if somebody wants one yeah, but you're going to have to come in and request it, and they're going to have to special order it. And I imagine probably take a fairly big deposit <laughs> to cover it. <laughs> I think so. If you change your mind, <laughs> I think so. Yeah, yeah. I I think it's it's interesting, and it kind of leads to another topic that we'll probably touch on another podcast. But just you know, station wagons had this negative yeah. connotation. Like my mom had a station wagon when I was a kid. Like yeah, it was it was the soccer mom car before SUVs and CUVs kind of became the dominant thing. Yeah. And so I think a lot of that still hangs around. Like people see a wagon, like my wife, you know, feels that way. Like she sees a, a, a wagon and it's like, Oh, that's a, that's a nerdy car. Yeah. Whereas sure, yeah. I think it's like the ultimate sleeper. If you have a fast <laughs> yeah. wagon. And it's fascinating because at least uh, in America, it seems like Subaru has ducked all that. Like yeah, that's the, the outback. That's the wagon that like is completely, it's almost like not thought to be a wagon. No, I don't know. It's like its own thing. It's jacked up and right. Yeah. Yeah. It's but... it. I, yeah. The Outback <laughs> has kind of escaped that, but I, I think it's cool. I don't know. I'm excited. Yeah. yeah. As someone who's not as big into EVs, I am excited to see it. In I, I will say this. I, I kind of wish that we had seen the, the GTS version of the Taycan. Yeah. First. Um, I, I know that that tends to come later in, mm -hmm. in the, the life cycle, yeah, the life cycle. Yeah. So we'll have to wait for that. But I was actually really uh, excited about that version. Do you think it'll have a GTS? I think it will. Now, so like what in the 4S and the turbo? I think so. Okay. I think that, and that actually slots maybe pretty close to what the Audi e-tron e GT, GT, yeah, you know, like in terms of numbers, might right. might end up parking. But what do they what do they do with that with an electric car? I'm not sure. I mean, right. do you, do you make a different electric sound? Maybe it's got a different electric sound. Yeah, I, that's <laughs> that's the problem. I mean, that that to me is like one of the fundamental problems with an EV is like if you don't badge it, yeah. they kind of all look the same. Yeah, at least in terms of like the Taycan, like a 4S is going to look the same as a Turbo S, unless you have the badge on there, and, and like unless you were the Mission E wheels. Yeah, and like I don't know, but you know, yeah. How do you differentiate? Because it sounds, it's going to sound. I mean, it's going to sound the same if they uh -huh. don't. Very. I, yeah, and I think what it's going to be, and, and you're probably not going to like this because of your take on the the GT3 front end. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably going to be a lot of in, interesting cosmetics, cosmetic, and 
mm-hmm. you know, grill type things, um, yeah. wings, fins, stuff like that. I mean, yeah, I think, I mean, I think if it's done well, that's fine. It's just like my, my, you thing just is don't it, want nostrils. No, those are just <laughs> ugly. Like, those are, that's like, like overall, I think the GT3, like I said last week, is styled too aggressively to have mm-hmm. room for a GT3 RS that's not like comical. But the <laughs> yeah. nostrils are just ugly. Like they would be ugly on any Porsche, <laughs> yeah. let alone a GT3. So yeah, yeah. So I think we're both excited for the Cross Turismo for a little different reasons. But uh, it's going to be it'll be a cool car. It'll be fun to see. It probably won't sell at all in America, but uh, <laughs> hopefully we see one. So the next uh, next topic I wanted to bring up was so this week Gordon Murray Automotive, which for those of you who don't know, Gordon Murray was an F1 designer. A famed F1 designer in the 70s and 80s who then went on to design the McLaren F1, the legendary kind of first supercar. Um, And he has developed uh, a new car called the T50, uh, which is a road-going car, but uh, that was introduced months ago. And now he's come out with the T50S, which is a a track-only, not road-legal version of uh, the T50. They're only building 25 of them. In comparison, 100 T50s are being built. It's going to be a 700-horsepower car weighing less than a ton. So insane power-to-weight ratio. Probably the biggest party piece is it's going to come with a V12 that revs to a 12,000.1 redline, which is insane. It ditches the manual transmission that the T50 is going to have in favor of a six-speed paddle shift since it is supposed to be getting every second and millisecond on the track. It's got this massive rear delta wing and giant diffuser uh, producing. It produces basically 150% more downforce than it weighs, uh, which is nuts, (laughs) 3,307 pounds of downforce. There's no word on the price, but the T50 is going to cost 3.08 million. My guess is this will be at least, it'll probably be more than that. My guess is maybe like 3.2, 3.5. So extreme amount of money low volume of you know incredibly low volume production so it's an interesting car i think it's a beautiful track car but it kind of brought up a bigger question that i wanted to talk about which is when you have cars like this that are so limited so expensive that they're they might as well be vaporware because you're just never going to see you know unless you go to goodwood festival of speed or maybe go to you know the quail at monterey car week like you're never going to see these cars so is it worth getting excited about them? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I mean, <clears throat> I've watched a number of, you know, Gordon Murray interviews, you know, when he was talking about the T50 design. And it's, I guess, from like an engineering perspective, it's super interesting to hear. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I will never be able to purchase one of those. I probably won't even let me within 500 feet <laughs> of these cars. But so I think it's, from the perspective of someone who's, you know, very good at what they do, being able to say money is no option, build, build the whatever thing. you want. Right. And he and Gordon can say, I will make this perfect. Right. And that's basically, it seems like what that's he's his done goal. in his interview. Yeah. Right. And um, I think what one of the things that is kind of exciting about this, at least from his perspective, is the S version was designed, it sounded like in parallel. Exactly. Yeah. And so this this wasn't this isn't like some like side. It's not like they took a T fifty and tacked on a wing and said, yeah. "Okay, we're done." They 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 said from the beginning, "This is we're going to be making this version as well." Right. And so I think like from a I guess an observer perspective, it's it's really 
it's just kind of cool to hear about it yeah and learn about it um you know like we said with some of the other vehicles some of this technology you know then kind of cascades to to other automotive manufacturers i mean right i don't know that you know you're going to see a you know big downforce fan intake on a Ford right. f-150 right, right, right. <laughs> but uh you know it, it's it's kind of just interesting anytime you know someone's very good at what they do allowing them and seeing them taking it to like the nth degree right. money no object it's it's kind of yeah. cool from that standpoint but yeah outside of like watching some cool youtube videos or yeah reading a neat blog article or magazine article yeah that's about it <laughs> yeah I, I think that's where i struggle with it is is there's a few things like one as someone who loves cars like this is fascinating to me like the idea of a a 12,000 redline V12 engine, like that's like motorcycle levels <laughs> of revving. I love that it's naturally, naturally aspirated. I'm sure it's going to sound insane. But the problem is like, it's all fantasy, you know, like you, there's no, there's no like aspirational character, character to this. Like, you know, mo for the most part, when, when I was young and when you were young, the cars that we drooled over, you know, whether it be the Lamborghini Countach you know, on, on the, the poster on the wall or whether it was a Ferrari or a Porsche or something, you thought like, if I work my tail off and I have a successful career in whatever, maybe one day I can afford to get something like that. For cars like this, you basically either ha have had to create a Fortune 500 company from scratch, have, you know, be royalty, you know, be the, be the head of a petrochemical company. Uh, I mean... You have this incredibly small fraction of people that could ever even dream of having a car like this because if you're buying a $3 million car, you're probably worth at least $100 million. $3 million will mean way too much to you to spend on a car if you don't have so much money that this is kind of a drop in the bucket. Yeah, and I think one of, I don't know, one maybe frustrating point about that scenario in particular is that a lot of these are just going to be in a sense museum pieces right they're going to hide in someone's warehouse of, and never of see a hundred other cars right because if you can afford this right. you probably have a hundred right. other cars well it's like i mentioned <laughs> to you when we we're prepping for the show you know that there was an article or a quote from the bugatti head of bugatti years back when they were making the veyron that said like the average bugatti owner the average owner has 84 cars three private jets and a yacht <laughs> So I mean, and that's for a one that's that was for a one and a half million dollar car at the time. So now you're talking a three million dollar car. So I mean, these are people that they live in a different reality from us. And I think it's really a shame that like cars that would otherwise be kind of poster cars on the walls of, of young, you know, guys and girls that love cars, they can never really realistically hope to attain something like this. You know, you and I felt like if we work our tails off, we can get a Porsche one day. We can maybe get a Ferrari one day. But like when you're talking a two or three million dollar car, it's just fantastical. Yeah. It's the Koenigsegg and Pagani. Yeah. It's vaporware kind of like effect. You said to, to, to yeah, the you, vast majority. It of might people. as well be. Yeah, <laughs> and and I I feel like we're kind of losing a bit of you know they're ma mass producing the cars that were at a, a level you know that would have been a dream car before, like a Ferrari four eight eight. Sure, it's a dream car to a lot of people, I'm sure, but like. They've made 10,000 of them, you know? Yeah. You know, the other piece of the equation with this, and I don't know specific numbers, but I think some of these halo cars for some companies end up going on to kind of fund the mission. 
Yeah, so that that's they, true. So that they can produce cars that, you know, I guess technically would fall under a category of, you know, maybe mass production. Right. But it's still a Ferrari. It's, you know, still an Aston Martin. Yeah, it is um, their biggest, like, profit margin car. For yeah, sure. and so it, it some of the stories are, you know, reflected on as this kind of began these mm-hmm. making these like absurd hyper halo cars um that some of these companies were you know flirting with bankruptcy or at least yeah. years of non non-profitability right and now that you've got these cars bringing in this extra revenue they're right. fairly sound whole they can right maybe invest in like you know racing invest in you know new you know versions of cars to meet like emissions requirements right. like maybe the the McLaren that we talked about yeah. last week, some of the, some of that money helps fund those, which, right. which keeps the brand. Right. Well, suppose, yeah, I mean, to your point, supposedly the majority of Aston's or the majority of McLaren's profits last year were from their ultimate series cars when they were delivering Senna's, Speedtails, Elva's. You know, I mean, if you're getting $3 million for your Speedtail when it's essentially a, a heavily modified 720S, like the architecture is yeah. not too different aside from the bodywork, like, you can make a massive profit margin on that, and that maybe helps fund your yeah your Artura development. Yeah, yeah, that you you may need to have in the future, regardless. Right. Yeah, so. so I I think that's fair. It is a it's a bit of a devil's advocate point because of course these yeah. cars you know they get developed and yeah this technology eventually you know trickles down. Like if you would have asked me back in you know two thousand eight when the Scuderia. 430 Scuderia came out with the paddle shift, single clutch paddle shift. Like, you know, would we end up with paddle shifts in a Ford Fusion sedan? I would be like, you're nuts. But that made its way down. Like, every sporty ish car now, even, you know, Golf GTIs have a dual clutch paddle Paddle shift. Paddle shift. So, I mean, it does eventually make its way down, at least some of it. So, I think there is value there. I think it's more just a shame to me that a lot of what are probably the coolest cars out there, like, Things like the T50, the Koenigsegg, the Pagani, like those are amazing cars, but they're they're not really aspirational cars, I think, unless you are born into like the Saudi royal family. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, to some extent, are some of these cars going to people who are actual enthusiasts? Right. Or is it? Just something or is it just a status, or yeah, it's a status, status symbol. symbol. You know, like you know, Ferrari and Lamborghini have really kind of leaned into that lifestyle brand kind of thing. Of like, we know that a bunch of people buying our four eight eights and our Huracans really don't give a shit about cars. Like, but they know Ferrari or Lambo is cool. Yeah, and they want to be seen in it. They want to drive around in Monaco in it or wherever. Yeah, and so it's a it's a lifestyle. They want to be associated with the brand. Um, but they're not in, not necessarily an enthusiast. Yeah, so I hope at least some of those vehicles do end up in in the hands of people who are you know true. Yeah, you know, fire breathing automotive enthusiasts. Right. I mean, I, that's <laughs> hopefully that's the only way you see them out and about. You know, yeah. I, I really hope to see a T fifty or or something like that running up the hill at Goodwood one. Yeah. You know, one year. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think you're right, and and hopefully the people that are making these massive collections at least have you know, public access to some of these cars at some point, because it'd be a shame if they just rotted away. Yeah. So moving on to our next topic, getting into a little bit of motorsports. Um, So Ferrari is finally returning to Le Mans after, you know, decades long absence. 
Um, they're going to be competing in 2023 in the newly established hypercar class against the likes of Toyota, Peugeot, SCG, which is Scuderie, Cameron Glickenhaus, which is actually a really kind of fascinating small manufacturer that was started by um, Jim Glickenhaus, who is a financier, hedge fund manager in New York. And uh, there's going to be a kind of a, another hypercar-ish class that Porsche, Audi, and Acura will be competing in. Um, that's essentially a, a hybrid hypercar class. They're both hybrids. There's kind of the differences between the two classes are complex, but essentially the, the hypercar class can run an all-wheel drive system. They kind of have carte blanche in terms of their uh, hybrid, um, both the electric motor development as well as the software development, whereas the LMDH class that Porsche and Audi are competing in all use the same hybrid system and uh, software so that it kind of decreases the cost to compete in that class. You know, I don't know. I'm super excited about this. What do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, for sure. It's it's great to see all of those brands back Yeah, in it. I mean, when you look at the records that they hold, yeah, I think Porsche might have the number one and yeah. you know, Audi's number two or something and, yeah. and, and Ferrari's up there. So right. it's super Particularly exciting. Particularly in LMP1, they all had their kind of errors of dominance. Yeah. So it's super ex- exciting to to see them back in. It's it's such a weird race, you yeah. know, this endurance. Right. <laughs> it's just kind of yeah. madness. So it's it's fun to see the the heavy hitters back in. And I think as as you alluded to in the discussion, it sounded like from Porsche and I'm assuming by way of that probably Audi as well, just looking at it and saying we've we can't just sink a ton of money into, you know, one car for one race. We, we've got to have some overlap. And it sounds right. like at least those two are going to be able to race their cars in, in other classes as well. So it was right. it basically when, when I was reading one of the interviews, they said, you know, financially, it makes complete sense for us to get back in at this point. Right. Yeah. I, I think it's I just I love to see a, a mark that's as story as Ferrari is. Yeah. In the history, not just of motor racing, but of Le Mans, get back into it and mix it up. You know, I mean, they've been complete. There have been privateer teams competing with like 488 GT3 cars and before that 458 GT3 cars. But to see them at the top level is going to be really fun um, fighting against Porsche and fighting against, you know, these other big manufacturers. And I think maybe almost as exciting <laughs> to me is that I really think this kind of heralds the next ferrari halo road car oh, yeah you were saying that. Um, yeah because it's been it's been a while since the la ferrari you know that the holy trinity the law for the 918 the la ferrari and the p1 came out like 10 years ago <laughs> um so it's about the right time and this to me is a perfect way to develop it they yeah. can develop the, the the race car and then you know put together a road car that you know will probably be prohibitively expensive to most people but will be awesome and and it's another way for them beyond just their f1 efforts to drive their hybrid technology experience which is you know undoubtedly going to have to go into all their road cars like the sf90 is you know i think their first major foray into having a hybrid road car but you know, if they're going to keep up with emissions regulations and all stuff, like they're going to have to go hybrid just like everybody else. And so I'm excited to see like this, you know, motorsport is going yeah. to drive their development just yeah, like exactly. it always has at Ferrari. And I think that's one of the things that is motorsports is it's, inc- it's incredibly important to some of these brands. I mean, yeah. that's their history. That's their that heritage. Is, that's in a way why people are willing to spend the money they're spending is that they can have some experience, some taste of that. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like, you know, 
it's like supporting your team. Like if yeah. you, it's fun to, if you own a Porsche to watch, uh, you know, Le Mans or an IMSA race and see GT3, yeah. you know, cup cars yeah, or RSRs actually. running around. And if you own a Ferrari, same thing. Like it's fun to see like the GT3 cars running around. And so I think it, the motorsports is incredibly important in selling the brand. I mean, I don't know. We just talked about how like, you know, influencers and whatnot, like the lifestyle brand stuff is creeping into car collecting. But, you know, I think there are still a ton of enthusiasts, yeah. you know, that go out. I don't think people are buying a GT3 just to look cool in it for the most yeah. part. Like people that are buying a manual GT3 are doing it because they absolutely love driving and they love having that connection to motorsport because so much of that stuff, you know, I gave it some stick last week, but like that swan neck rear wing on the GT3, like that's basically off the RSR car. Um, so there's this nearly direct translation from their yeah. race cars to their road cars, particularly with Porsche, that I think has really driven the success of that brand and, and especially the GT cars, which have been selling more and more each iteration. And having Ferrari get back into that, you know, is is going to make people who want to be enthusiasts of the brand and, and that our car people be more excited about it. One thing I read that I thought was interesting, they specifically said it didn't have anything to do with this, but uh, you kind of wonder a little bit with the Formula One mm -hmm. uh, budget caps. Oh, yeah. That, that maybe now is a good time. They've, mm -hmm. they've got some extra money. They free that they up money for that. Deploy. They've got maybe some personnel that right. they might be able to deploy. I yeah. I swear I read an interview um, with with somebody out of Ferrari that, that said, no, 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 no. It has nothing to do right. with that. <laughs> like well, you kind of think they, like, well, I mean, it makes a lot of sense yeah. though. No, no company is ever going to want to admit that their funds are limited. Yeah. You know, but the re and, and Ferrari has a lot more money than most, but the reality is like, if you're Ferrari and you think that you need to budget two, 300 million to compete with Mercedes every year in F1 in terms of car development, getting the best drivers, et cetera. And now all of a sudden F1 stepping in saying, well, no, here's a budget cap. You're like, well, crap. I just said, you know, whatever, eight, say $80 million freed up to develop this car. That, that was know. probably in the works anyways at some point. Right. Now it's like, why not throw this money and get back into Le Mans? Right. And, and it's getting back toward the spirit of Ferrari. You know, Enzo famously only built road cars to fund his racing teams. Yeah. And really had disdain for the road cars. Like he, <laughs> he and his customers that bought them. Quite frankly. <laughs> yeah. but, but I mean, Ferrari was founded to race. You know, Enzo was a race car driver for Alfa Romeo before he started his own company. He loved it. So I think this is, you know, in a time when Ferrari is, is getting more and more well known for like selling hats and shirts and shit. Yeah, <laughs> as it, as it is cars, you know the fact that they're reapplying themselves to motorsport, yeah. I think is is a really good thing. Yeah, it's promising for the future. Yeah, so uh, kind of switching off of motorsports topic to kind of a more an interesting EV topic uh, that I basically just want to talk shit about a little <laughs> is um, uh, so Lucid Motors, which is a, a, an EV company that has not released a car yet although they've got one called the Lucid Air that will be coming out soon, uh, has plans to basically go pseudo-public with a, with a large valuation. So Lucid Motors and uh, what's called a special purpose acquisition company, Churchill Capital Corporation, are planning to mer a merger to go public. And basically, the two companies are combining at a transaction equity value of $11.75 And that transaction value 
essentially uh, makes Lucid valued at approximately $24 billion uh, at an offer price of $15 a share. The deal is going to give Lucid about close to $4.5 billion in cash, um, which is going to allow them to kind of further fund development of not just the Lucid Air, but their upcoming Lucid Gravity, which is their luxury SUV. And also it helps expand their production facilities in Arizona um, uh, that uh, eventually they want to make about 365,000 vehicles annually out of, which I think is a hell of a lot when you look at how much those cars cost. So the Lucid Air, last I heard, was going to be around $180,000, $200,000. I'm assuming the Gravity is going to be, you know, a a six-figure car as well. So to think that if they think they're going to sell 365,000, they're thinking there's a hell of a lot of rich people out there that want to drive EVs. But what do you think about that valuation? Well... I mean, I, I have to assume that the, the the numbers that you were just quoting, that the that high that must be for the high end version. Yeah. Um, so there's different trim levels, just like with the Taycan. Yeah. Because um, that is insane. Like to your point, I mean, so we talked a little bit about this, you know, this week these valuations, and you know, you you look at the Tesla valuation, you look at you know Lucid, you look at you know Rivian, mm-hmm. and and part of me, I think that when you think about Tesla. The valuation can make some sense if you think about them in, in terms of they are more than just a car manufacturer, that they mm-hmm. might be home energy production and they also might be, yeah. you know, grid management with batteries uh, as, yeah you know, as you have more renewable like resources. Yeah. yeah. So then, okay, maybe, maybe they could be valued, you know, four times what, what Toyota or Volkswagen is right. because they're p- presumably in the future will make more than that. Right. Um and then the other piece with with some of these electric car manufacturers, I think what a lot of legacy manufacturers have, have probably discovered is that a lot of these cars come down to software. Yeah. You know, if you go on the forums and you look at the Tycon forum and you look at the Audi e-tron forum, there's there's a lot of irritation with the software. Yeah. And and by that I mean to some extent you have to integrate all of these different pieces in the car to to keep it efficient. Whereas before, you know, you, you kind of had boundless energy with, with, you know, the internal combustion engine. So if these things were inefficient and siphoning off a ton of energy, who cares? Right. And so I think to some extent, part of what maybe, you know, drives these valuations are investors seeing the legacy manufacturer struggling. Yeah. And, and they're looking, and investors are looking at some of these EV manufacturers and, and seeing like, okay, they get the software piece that the software piece is almost more important than the car yeah. manufacturer. And so maybe that drives some of it. Yeah. Maybe it's also, nobody knows where the hell to put their money anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So everybody's betting on the resource. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the new race. Take their money out know. of GameStop. And put it <laughs> yeah, yeah. Take Lucid to the moon. <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll click before I respond, I'll, I'll clarify it. So, there's four trim levels to the air. The pure is, which is their base model is 77 grand. These are all prior to options. The touring is 87. The grand touring is 139. And the dream edition is 169. So probably (laughs) knocking on the door of 200 with options. So, yeah. So I, I agree with you. There is, it's all speculation, right? Like these guys, like investors are looking and saying, okay, well, it looks like they're putting out a good product. You know, if their software is excellent, maybe they're the next Tesla. And at $15 a share, it could be a steal. You know, and I think that that's kind of where I think the fact that Tesla so has so drastically changed the stock market speculation game like Tesla makes no sense in terms of its current value 
compared to its product output. And so it's it's a stock that I think is almost to a large degree driven on what they might be able to do in the future, what Elon might be able to dream up. You know, I think that that's probably what investors are looking at with Lucid. The fear of being left out. The fear of being left out. <laughs> like you said, people maybe not knowing where to invest their money. I just think it's it's insane that a car company. Now, I mean, maybe I'm just thinking old school way, but what is essentially a car company that has yet to produce a production vehicle is valued at nearly as much as some established manufacturers have been making vehicles for half a century or more. Um, It just, you know, the first car could come out and it could be amazing. It could. And and they could sell out and it's like, holy shit, I got in on the ground floor at $15 a share. This is great. Or the first production vehicle is a piece of shit (laughs) and falls apart. And you're like, oh my God. Because the thing is like, Tesla, you know, Tesla broke new ground and all this stuff. Yeah, and and it's and they went through production hell, right? I mean, and and yeah, Elon even said that. Yeah. And the thing is, that stock more than just about anything else is driven off of Elon. Like people believing that if Elon says something's going to happen, whether it's SpaceX landing their rockets, Mars, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that it's going to happen. And yeah. Lucid doesn't have that. They don't have some dynamic mercurial Tony yeah. Stark of a CEO. <laughs> like you know, I. I just think it's crazy. I think it it's a yeah. It's it's probably to some extent similar to like the dot com. I think it totally bubble. Yeah, you know when it was like pets.com was worth eight hundred million dollars. Yeah, it was yeah. it was like anything is possible. Anything right. is possible. Look at what happened to to, to Tesla. And I, right. I do think at the end of the day, some of these companies are going to come out and they will be successful. Yeah, but I I. Don't know who. Um, right. If I invested in one, it would be like my best guess. And yeah. Then, honestly, whether I'm right or wrong, you know, it'd almost be luck. Right. So I do think like some some are going to come out and they will be will be successful. I think yeah. there is a a big paradigm shift, you know, going on here, especially as I you know mentioned earlier, the software. Yeah. Of the of this future car state mm-hmm. is uh, is so so important. I mean, yeah. you can look at the things in your home that bother you. A lot of times they're engineered fine, but their mm-hmm. software is t- terrible, drives right. you up the wall. Right. And so I think um, I think somebody will come out of this and be successful. And in, yeah. the, in the meantime, yeah, we're going to see some crazy valuations, and some of them are going to crash and burn. Yeah. I mean, that car, it may come out, and it may they may hit it out of the park. Yeah. And it may just be like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. I don't think that's going to happen. I yeah. mean, you're you're building the software. You're building the car. Yeah. Supply chains. Right. Something is not going to go well. Right. Well, <laughs> it's and, just a given. And to be to be fair to Lucid, like Lucid was founded by some ex Tesla people. Supposedly they poached some of the better Tesla people to do the driving dynamics, the software, etc. Some of the journalists that have been up to Lucid to see the car have said the fit and finish looks to be very very good. Um, which you know, if all you got to do is produce one demo car, like. Anyone probably could make the fit and finish look pretty good. But the early signs are, are very positive. It's just, it just seems everything about what they're saying they're going to do and the early evaluate, the early valuation on it just seems a little pie in the a sky. A little pie in the sky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's air. I, I could eat my words and have a lucid air in five years. <laughs> yeah. Know, but... Yeah. Yeah. I, I wish them. You know all the success, and and it's it's better to have more competition. But I think you're right in that they're more 
the rich are getting richer and they need to find a place to spend their money. <laughs> yeah. And I think that some of the elusive stock might be there. Uh, well, I think that's going to about do it for this week, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for listening as always. Um, hit us up on Instagram at the Blofeld podcast. Um, we'll, you know, let you know when new shows, the new shows are going live. And uh, that's a great place to interact with us and let us know what, you know, if you have show topics or ideas that you want to hear more about, uh, if you have questions for us, um, just let us know there. And until next week, we'll see you next time.